This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On July 3rd, 1820, Lieutenant Michele Morelli marched into the city of Avellino, Italy, with over 1,000 men at his back. The day before, an armed protest had broken out in the nearby town of Nola, organized by a secret society called the Carbonari. The demonstrators wanted to force the King of Naples to turn his kingdom into a constitutional monarchy. And Lieutenant Morelli wasn't going to Avellino to stop the rapidly spreading protests. He was there to lead them. As Lieutenant Morelli and his men marched on Avellino, they were met by the city's Royal Samnite Regiment and its commander, the first real test had arrived. However, the commander didn't want to fight Morelli. He wanted to join him. Together, the two men marched into Avellino. It was one of the first cities to officially recognize the Carbonari's cause. And it wouldn't be the last. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our second of two episodes on the Carbonari a revolutionary Italian group that operated in the early 1800s. Last week, we examined the oppressive environment that led to the Carbonari's formation in Naples. This week, we'll take a look at the circumstances that allowed for the Carbonari to lead a revolution and their struggle to install a constitutional government in the Neapolitan kingdom. When King Ferdinand retook his throne in 1815, he immediately tried to stamp out the Carbonari in Naples. However, declaring that the Carbonari were no longer allowed to operate wasn't enough. Some estimates placed the society's membership at over 300,000 people. The Carbonari were too numerous to be easily eradicated. Strong arm tactics weren't particularly effective either. The fear of the hangman's noose may have been enough to disband a loose group of revolutionaries, but the Carbonari were well organized to withstand Ferdinand's attempts to snuff them out. 
The king's brutal actions also had an unintended side effect. They helped the Carbonari become more unified. When they first formed, sometime between 1807 and 1810, the various Carbonari lodges didn't have a single specific goal. Although they agreed that they wanted to fight tyranny and resist foreign rule, there was no concrete vision of what their ideal government would look like. However, when King Ferdinand targeted the Carbonari by name, a few prominent leaders got together to create an overall vision. By 1818, they were all on the same page. They wanted King Ferdinand to legally install a constitutional monarchy. In this arrangement, Ferdinand would be allowed to remain king, but he'd have to answer to an elected national lawmaking body. Additionally, the constitution would guarantee rights such as freedom of speech and a free press. But those were freedoms Europe's most powerful kingdoms couldn't let the Neapolitans have, or any nation for that matter. After Napoleon Bonaparte's empire crumbled in 1815, the continent's absolute monarchs were more desperate than ever to maintain their unilateral authority. If the Neapolitans managed to get a say in their own government, then citizens of other countries could stage revolts of their own. But as the saying goes, timing is everything. In early 1820, another revolution gave the Carbonari the blueprint on how to achieve their goals without being immediately repressed. Like Naples, Spain was under the control of an oppressive, autocratic king. In addition to minimizing people's civil liberties, he was draining the Spanish treasury to put down a revolution in the country's American holdings. On January 1st, 1820, the situation reached a breaking point. A regiment of Spanish soldiers refused orders to sail to America and marched on the capital of Madrid instead. Like many of their countrymen, they wanted a constitution. Their demands gained popular support. By the time they reached the capital in March, there were so many people calling for a constitution that the Spanish king had no choice but to accept it or potentially face a civil war. the Carbonari realized that they could employ a similar strategy. Because the Spanish king had willingly adopted the constitution, Europe's other monarchies didn't have an excuse to invade. Like the Spanish had done, the Carbonari decided to start small. Rather than having all 300,000 Carbonari rise up at once, they would gradually grow the cause. This would give their demand for a constitution a more popular organic feel. With scores of Carbonari within the military's ranks, the military was the ideal place to begin the movement. To get the wheels of revolution turning, a Carbonari priest named Luigi Minichini recruited a pair of cavalry officers, Michele Morelli and Giuseppe Salvati. They were stationed in the city of Nola. It was far away enough from Naples to avoid immediate retribution for revolutionary actions, but close enough to attract the Neapolitan public's attention. Like many other officers, Morelli and Salvati were disillusioned with King Ferdinand's reign. After he had retaken control of the kingdom, Ferdinand had allowed officers who had joined during the previous regime to keep their posts. In practice, soldiers like Morelli and Salvati were sidelined, while Ferdinand's older officers advanced through the ranks. 
It's not entirely clear if Morelli and Salvati were part of the Carbonari, but they were certainly willing to work with them. Under a constitution, they could earn promotions through hard work rather than rely on an ill-tempered monarch's favor. Many of their fellow soldiers felt the same way, whether they were Carbonari or not. So when Morelli and Salvati defected from Ferdinand's army and led a public rally calling for a constitution on July 2, 1820, the 127 men under their command joined what was effectively a mutiny. Thanks to the Carbonari, the protests quickly grew. With hundreds of Carbonari joining the rally, it only took one day for Morelli and Salvati's movement to outgrow Nola's modest confines. On July 3rd, they marched to the nearby city of Avellino to recruit more people to their cause. Even just one day in, this new revolution was markedly different from its counterpart in 1799. The first time around, the call for the constitution had come from the Neapolitan aristocracy. In contrast, the 1820 effort was driven by junior military officers and average citizens. The popular groundswell attracted the support of people in higher positions of authority as well. When Morelli and Salvati reached Avellino, the colonel in charge of the city's defenses joined the revolution rather than repelled it. By the end of the day, there were over 1,000 voices actively calling for King Ferdinand to accept the constitution. And they were only growing louder. In his fervor for the constitutional cause, Avellino's colonel sent word to all the major cities in the Neapolitan kingdom. Thanks to the recent invention of the semaphore telegraph, new developments could be shared almost instantaneously. But the telegraph came with a dark side. While it rallied more people to the cause, it also allowed King Ferdinand to immediately know how severe the situation was. Hoping to end things before they got too far out of hand, Ferdinand sent three of his generals to put the rebellious officers in their place. However, one of them refused to march on Avellino, fearing his men would desert him and join the rebellion. The other two barely departed Naples before they came to the same conclusion. Their decision added fuel to the Carbonari's fire. On July 4th, rallies calling for the constitution were held in most of the kingdom's major cities. The revolution had become an organic movement, or at least that's how the Carbonari made it look. Now it was time to show Ferdinand just how many people wanted a say in their government. In the city of Foggia, constables and Carbonari paraded together in the streets. The society was not so secret anymore. Waving their tricolored red, blue, and black flag, the Carbonari held a rally in the main plaza. They called for their members and any other secret societies to join the cause. The call was answered. The next day, armed Carbonari from throughout the region arrived in Foggia. Faced with overwhelming numbers, the city's royally appointed leader ceded to a Carbonarist counterpart. They were beginning to take control. However, despite this important step, the Carbonari still lacked a major authority figure to lend legitimacy to their cause. This was one drawback of excluding the aristocracy. But all that changed on the night of the 5th, 
when General Guglielmo Pepe left Naples under cover of darkness to join the protests in Avellino. A few years earlier, General Pepe had tried to push acting king Joaquim Murat to install a constitution shortly before King Ferdinand regained control of Naples. Now he was taking matters into his own hands. On top of being a general, Guglielmo Pepe was also the Neapolitan field marshal, meaning he was the kingdom's highest-ranking military officer. With Pepe on the Carbonari's side, Ferdinand had no chance of ending the revolution without major bloodshed. On July 6th, King Ferdinand gave in. He announced that a constitution would be acknowledged within eight days, but he wouldn't do it himself. Under the pretext of being sick, he bestowed royal authority to his 43-year-old son, Francis. In essence, Ferdinand was passing the buck to Francis, so he wouldn't have to be the one to give up his absolute power. At the same time, Ferdinand further distanced himself from the situation in case Francis just so happened to refuse to obey his father's wishes. And many of the revolutionaries feared that was exactly the plan. The same day King Ferdinand made his announcement, he set up a provisional governing council to facilitate the Constitution's adoption. However, the council was made up of people from Ferdinand's administration. It didn't have any constitutionalist representation. There were whispers that instead of working towards implementing a constitution, the council was planning a counter-revolution by marshalling what remained of the royal army against General Pepe and the Carbonari. Additionally, some were concerned that General Pepe's defection to the revolution side was only a ruse. They feared he would crush the nascent movement from inside. But even if either of those concerns were true, there was nothing Ferdinand's ministers within the provisional government could do. There were too many people calling for the constitution. The Carbonari's goal to create a truly popular movement had been accomplished. There was no stopping the boulder rolling down the hill. On July 7, 1820, Prince Regent Francis agreed to adopt the Constitution. After two decades of planning, the Neapolitan Kingdom had become a constitutional monarchy in the span of a mere five days. The revolution's efficiency and lack of bloodshed was remarkable. As one of King Ferdinand's generals said, not a single crime was committed. The lives, property, and the rights of all citizens were religiously respected and the established authorities remained at their posts. Two days after Francis made his announcement, thousands of Carbonari flocked to Naples for celebrations. Once their parade through the streets concluded, Francis himself gave a public address. He was clad in the Carbonari's colors of blue, red, and black. By all appearances, the royal family was fully prepared to embrace the new status quo. However, Ferdinand was still the king, and just because he had willingly adopted the Constitution, that didn't mean he would keep it. While Ferdinand made no move to openly contest the Constitution for the moment, he worked behind the scenes to restore his supposedly divine authority. In the coming months, Ferdinand and the Carbonari would find their roles reversed. 
While the secret society struggled in the open to create a new society, their enemy operated in the shadows to ensure a cloak-and-dagger agreement came to fruition. Coming up, the Carbonari find that maintaining their authority is more difficult than achieving it. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Over the course of five days, the Carbonari delivered on two decades of planning. They had bided their time for years, waiting for the perfect moment to stage a revolution in Naples. And on July 7, 1820, they finally got what they wanted, a constitutional monarchy. On July 9th, massive celebrations were held in Naples. That day, Prince Regent Francis announced that a new provisional government was being formed. Although Francis's father, King Ferdinand, would remain as the nominal head of state, the true power would lie with Ferdinand's ministers and an elected national parliament. However, the ministers Francis named were all regarded to be loyal to his father and were deeply unpopular with the Carbonari. Elections for the parliament wouldn't take place until August. If these ministers were allowed to rule unchecked in the interim, they could severely limit the constitution's powers. To counteract any interference, the Carbonari set up their own General Assembly in Naples. Its representatives were high-ranking Carbonari from the kingdom's major regions. In addition to keeping the provisional government accountable to the people's will, the General Assembly was largely responsible for maintaining order within Naples. And soon, the Carbonari's responsibilities expanded outside the city limits. When King Ferdinand agreed to the constitution in Naples, the question arose of what would happen in his other kingdom, Sicily. Although Ferdinand had united Naples and Sicily under a single banner upon his restoration in 1815, the two kingdoms were traditionally independent of each other. Government officials in Sicily were in favor of adopting a constitution, but there was disagreement over which document they wanted. Some were in favor of the Carbonari's constitution, while others preferred a document that would be unique to Sicily, making it an independent government. While many of Sicily's major cities preferred to adopt the Carbonari's constitution and remain loyal to Naples, the capital of Palermo was controlled by pro-Sicilian council. Boasting a large military presence, this council was prepared to use force against any cities that didn't fall in line. But with the fledgling Neapolitan government still finding its feet, losing half of its territory wasn't an option. Naples simply couldn't afford losing the revenue Sicily provided, and it certainly couldn't afford to wage a civil war either. If General Pepe's army was tied up in Sicily, the kingdom would be vulnerable to attack from foreign powers, eager to restore King Ferdinand's absolute monarchy. 
Ultimately, the Neapolitan Provisional Government decided to try and stop the problem before it grew out of control. In August, as the elections for the national parliament began, the Neapolitan Provisional Government sent a smaller force commanded by General Pepe's brother, Florestano, to deal with the separatist council in Palermo. But while both Pepe brothers supported the constitution, Florestano wasn't completely allied with the Carbonari. Upon reaching Palermo, he refused to attack the separatists. Instead, he wanted to assess the situation further. However, the national parliament was about to meet. It was imperative for Sicily to be represented in the proceedings. Rather than pressing the issue with the Council of Elites in Palermo, the Carbonari resorted to their tried and true tactic. They empowered the Sicilian people. To that end, they sent Luigi Minichini, the Carbonarist priest who was instrumental in starting the July Revolution, and his oratory was just as powerful in Sicily as it had been on the mainland. Holding rallies in the cities of Messina and Catania, Minichini garnered massive support for the national parliament. Hailed as the liberator of the fatherland, Minichini's efforts ensured that most of Sicily sent representatives to the upcoming parliamentary session. Their participation confirmed that the Neapolitan government could draw resources from the region. The first national parliament met on October 1, 1820. It was a fulfillment of the Carbonari's vision of a true popular government. Out of 96 representatives from the mainland and Sicily, only 11 were part of the aristocracy. While none of them were lower class per se, it was still a remarkably diverse group. In addition to the 11 nobles, the national parliament was comprised of priests, landowners, professors, doctors, merchants, government employees, and soldiers. Shortly after convening, the parliament faced its first major test. General Florestano had finally made a decision. He recommended that Sicily should have its own constitution and parliament. It's not entirely clear why he came to this conclusion. Perhaps he wanted to avoid bloodshed, or maybe he truly believed the Sicilians deserved independence. Whatever his reasoning, the national parliament was determined to keep Sicily in the kingdom. Once again, Luigi Minichini was dispatched to hold rallies in Messina and Catania. The city's leaders promised him that they were loyal to Naples and refused to join General Florestano's call for a separate Sicilian government. Assured that Palermo was isolated in its desire for independence, the national parliament sent another general to Palermo for a fresh round of negotiations. Although the matter was not yet settled, the Carbonari had managed to keep the kingdom intact, for now. But just as they had fended off the Sicilian crisis, the Carbonari faced an even greater threat, the Austrian Empire. After Napoleon Bonaparte was defeated in 1815, Austria's chancellor, Prince Clemens von Metternich, became Europe's most influential power broker. Representing the Habsburg dynasty, Metternich had restored the power of absolute monarchies in the countries that Napoleon previously liberated. When Metternich arranged King Ferdinand's return to the Neapolitan throne in 1815, 
It came with the caveat that Ferdinand wouldn't take any actions that went against Austria's interests, and adopting a constitution definitely fell into that category. However, dismantling the constitution wasn't as simple as marching into Naples and restoring Ferdinand's full authority. In the years since Napoleon's downfall, Metternich had constructed a fragile peace across the continent. If he exercised too much unilateral authority, the other European powers might see him as the next Napoleon. Instead, Metternich called a council with the other major powers. On November 19, 1820, Russia and Prussia agreed that Austria could use military force to intervene in Naples if necessary. Now, all Metternich needed was a reason to make it necessary. To that end, he invited Ferdinand to attend a conference in January to negotiate an end to the constitutional monarchy. But Ferdinand couldn't simply pack his things and head to Austria. Under the terms of the Neapolitan constitution, he needed permission from the national parliament to negotiate with foreign powers. And that meant he needed permission from the Carbonari. On December 7th, Prince Regent Francis published a letter from Ferdinand claiming he wanted to attend the conference so he could make necessary and wise adjustments to the Constitution. The Carbonari saw right through the trap. If Ferdinand was allowed to go, he'd give his consent for Metternich to invade before he even set down his bags. That night, the Carbonari met. They agreed to resort to armed conflict rather than allow the Constitution to be altered. The following morning, December 8th, King Ferdinand's ministers presented the national parliament with Metternich's letters and informed them of Ferdinand's desire to attend the January conference. The Carbonari, watching from the galleries, gave a clear answer. The Constitution or death. The message quickly spread to the people of Naples. As crowds rioted through the city, the Carbonari dispatched messengers to the outlying provinces. They hoped to gather enough support to squash any possibility of Ferdinand going to Austria. The call was answered. By the dawn of December 9th, armed Carbonari had descended upon Naples. Members of parliament who didn't count themselves amongst the Carbonari's ranks feared for their lives. But despite the uprising, the parliament still met to discuss Ferdinand's proposal. The issue at hand was twofold, whether the Constitution would be altered and whether Ferdinand would be permitted to attend the January conference. Ultimately, Ferdinand was given permission to go. If he wasn't, Austria would certainly invade by claiming the king was being held in Naples against his will. But the Carbonari secured conditions for his departure. Before Ferdinand could leave, he had to take an oath to support the Constitution and defend it when he went to Austria. To reassure the people that he would remain loyal to the Constitution, Ferdinand had Prince Francis read a letter to his ministers and advisors. In it, he claimed that he would steadfastly insist on the Constitution being maintained in his kingdom. The letter's contents quickly spread throughout the kingdom by stating in no uncertain terms that he would support the Constitution. Ferdinand had bowed to the Carbonari's wishes. Now, if he went back on his word and Austria invaded, it would be much easier to rally the people to arms. 
On December 14th, Ferdinand departed for Austria. As proof of his loyalty to the Constitution, he pinned a ribbon with the Carbonari's colors to his chest. But when push came to shove, Ferdinand crumpled. On January 28, 1821, the king dispatched a letter to Naples. The Holy Alliance of Austria, Russia, and Prussia were irrevocably determined not to permit a continuance of the present state of things, and therefore have resolved to use force, if persuasion be not enough, to produce immediate change. By February 4th, an Austrian army crossed into Italian territory. Ferdinand's letter reached Naples on the 9th. The Carbonari hastily assembled to consider a response. They concluded that Ferdinand's letter had been written under duress. Whether or not they actually believed that, it was enough for the national parliament. On February 13th, they made the official declaration. Naples was going to war. Coming up, the Carbonari and the Neapolitan people fight for their freedom. Now the conclusion of our story. On February 13, 1821, the Neapolitan National Parliament declared war against the approaching Austrian army. Despite King Ferdinand's assurances to defend the Constitution at all costs, he had done nothing to resist the Austrian Chancellor Clemens von Metternich's desire to re-establish an absolute monarchy in Naples. Now it was up to the Carbonari to lead the fight, to maintain the freedoms they had worked for so long to win. But victory wouldn't be easy. The Austrians had sent 50,000 men to Naples, with an extra 20,000 in reserve. While the Neapolitan army had 40,000 men of its own, they were far outclassed by the more disciplined enemy. Making matters more difficult, the differences in opinion within the national parliament led to a disjointed plan of attack. The Carbonari, whose disparate voices had been united in the call for a constitution, were no longer all on the same page. While some were enthusiastically calling for the entire country to take up arms, other Carbonari believed gathering that many men was impractical. Not even Luigi Minichini, who was a driving force behind the July Revolution, believed it could be done. The main problem with such a massive effort was that there simply wasn't the finances to support that many soldiers. Due to the turbulent state of Naples, many foreign loans had been rescinded, and money within the kingdom was hard to come by. And the soldiers they could pay were difficult to control. During the July Revolution, the fact that many of them were Carbonari helped create a united front, but in the face of the Austrian advance, it was a hindrance. In this instance, being both a soldier and a Carbonari obscured the chain of command. In some regiments, a commander could be a lower rank within the Carbonari than one of his junior officers. If that junior officer disagreed with his superior, he could convince his fellow Carbonari to disobey orders. Despite the Carbonari's influence within the army, Field Marshal Guglielmo Pepe didn't have the power to get everyone on the same page. Although he was in charge of the Neapolitan forces, he answered to the national parliament. But with so many voices calling for different strategies, coming up with a coherent plan was difficult. And yet, the Carbonari refused to give up hope. 
On March 7, 1821, Field Marshal Pepe and a force of about 10,000 men took matters into their own hands and attacked the Austrians. It was a complete disaster. General Pepe's crushing defeat demoralized the rest of the Neapolitan forces. On March 23rd, the Austrian army entered Naples without resistance. King Ferdinand was close behind to reclaim his throne. Once again, the Carbonari's dream of a constitutional monarchy was dead. Upon his return, Ferdinand acted swiftly and mercilessly to rid the kingdom of the constitution and anyone who supported it, namely the Carbonari. Knowing Ferdinand's wrath would be severe, Carbonarist icons Guglielmo Pepe and Luigi Minichini sailed for Barcelona before the Austrians arrived in Naples. However, Ferdinand wasn't content to let the revolution dissolve without letting a few heads roll. That grisly fate was left to cavalry officers Michele Morelli and Giuseppe Salvati. Although they may not have been the revolution's architects, they had incited it with their initial demonstrations at NOLA. Following Morelli and Salvati's executions, Ferdinand moved to purge the army of any traces of the Carbonari. He was determined to eradicate any chance of another uprising. Every single military officer was required to give a detailed account of his political activities after 1793, the year the King of France was executed. Anyone who was discovered to have ever supported the Constitution was discharged. Some were even sent to jail. In total, 14 infantry and five cavalry regiments were entirely eliminated and replaced with foreign mercenaries. This purge of the Carbonari and constitutionalist ideals extended to the rest of society, too. Public employees and schoolteachers were viewed with intense suspicion. A majority of the students at the University of Naples were temporarily suspended. Many judges and municipal officers were dismissed from their posts. If someone was accused of supporting the revolution, they were placed under police surveillance. Among the many constitutional rights Ferdinand revoked upon his restoration, he dissolved the freedom of the press. Under the direction of the secret police, the National Parliament's papers were seized and destroyed. On May 7, 1821, King Ferdinand decreed it was illegal to possess any emblems, papers, books, or other devices belonging to the secret societies. Those who were caught with any of those materials would be exiled from the kingdom for a minimum of 10 years, and the restrictions only became more severe. Per a decree on December 4, 1821, all printed materials had to be approved by the police. With the Carbonari under such intense scrutiny, they had to once again retreat into the shadows. But their dreams of a free society were far from dead. As Naples slipped back into Ferdinand's iron grip, a group of Carbonari in the northern Italian kingdom of Sardinia were beginning their own constitutional movement. On March 10, 1821, a band of military officers led a mutiny in support of the Carbonari's constitution. But unlike the Neapolitan Revolution, the Sardinian movement went beyond abolishing the monarchy. Its proponents were also calling for a unified Italian state. 
Although the Austrians quickly put down this insurrection as well, the green, white, and red flag of the short-lived Kingdom of Italy became the symbol for the Risorgimento, or Italian unification movement. The remaining Carbonari rallied around this nationalistic sentiment as they plotted their next move. But with Ferdinand still firmly in control and the Austrian army still occupying the Neapolitan kingdom, there was little they could do and no hope for a renewed constitution in Naples. However, the Austrians' influence only went so far. Although the Carbonari had been suppressed in Naples, their efforts there had inspired some French citizens to establish a branch of the secret society in their own country. Although France was technically a constitutional monarchy, when King Charles X took the throne in 1824, he reversed many of the freedoms the constitution granted. In response, the French parliament became dominated by a liberal faction, many of whom were likely Carbonari. In an attempt to silence the growing opposition, Charles passed the St. Cloud Ordinances on July 2, 1830. Without informing anyone, he suspended the free press, banned the freedom of assembly, and stripped the traditionally liberal bourgeoisie of the right to vote. When the ordinances were formally announced on July 26, there was chaos in the streets of Paris. Charles hadn't even informed his military chiefs of his decision, so they had done nothing to prepare for riots. By July 27th, the Parisians were throwing rocks, tiles, and whatever debris they could find from the rooftops onto the police below. The police responded in kind. As night descended, 22 rioters were dead. Little by little, the people gained possession of weapons and started fighting back in earnest. With most of the French military fighting in Algiers, the police were quickly outnumbered and outgunned. On August 2nd, Charles formally abdicated in favor of his distant cousin, Louis-Philippe. Thanks in large part to the Carbonari, France's constitution was reaffirmed. And this time, it lasted more than a few months. Louis-Philippe reigned without much issue for the next 25 years. Inspired by the successful revolution in France, the Italian Carbonari rose once again in late 1830 and early 1831. Although they remained dormant in Naples, Carbonari in the northern states of Modena and Parma led uprisings demanding a constitution. They successfully installed provisional governments in those states, but knew they would inevitably face an Austrian response. The Italian Carbonari hoped the newly crowned Louis-Philippe of France would help them repel their shared enemy of democracy. But even though the Carbonari had helped him win his crown, Louis-Philippe refused to lend the Italians his support. Without the backing of the French military, the Italian insurrectionists stood no chance against the Austrians and were swiftly subdued. It was the last major action taken by the Carbonari, and they gradually faded from existence. However, their legacy lived on. One of the crucial figures in the 1831 uprisings was a Carbonari named Giuseppe Mazzini. After being arrested and subsequently jailed in Genoa, he spent the next two years forming a cohesive thesis on his political beliefs. 
After his release from prison, Mazzini formed a new society called the Young Italians, whose goal was to unite the disparate Italian states into a single nation. Although he believed in the Carbonari's vision of a constitutional monarchy, Mazzini wanted more for his nation. He took up the green, white, and red flag from the nationalistic Sardinian Revolution, rather than the Carbonari's blue, red, and black. One of Mazzini's most devout supporters was a merchant captain named Giuseppe Garibaldi. After hearing about the young Italians in 1833, Garibaldi sought out Mazzini and became his protege. In the ensuing decades, Garibaldi and Mazzini led several revolts in the name of Italian unification. Although unsuccessful, the two men never gave up. Thanks in large part to their efforts, the country was finally unified under the green, white, and red flag on March 17, 1861. The process was completed in 1870 with the annexation of Rome. In addition to bringing the Italian peninsula under one banner, the movement also ensured the country would be ruled by a constitutional monarchy. Until the rise of Benito Mussolini and the fascists in the 1930s, the Italian people finally had a say in how their country was run. And once World War II concluded, the country was finally declared a republic. Thanks to the Carbonari's legacy, a process that began all the way back in 1799 was finally complete. As of 2020, the Carbonari no longer exist. The charcoal maker's revolutionary fire has long gone cold, but that's because it no longer needs to be stoked. Although the Carbonari don't have the same name recognition as secret societies like the Freemasons, the Illuminati, or the Skull and Bones, they have a claim to fame that most of these other societies don't. They accomplished their goal. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the Carbonari, amongst the many sources we used, we found Naples and Napoleon by John A. Davis, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Joel Stein. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Alex Benedon, with writing assistance by Maggie Edmire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs> <laughs>